You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. You know, join our conversation by tweeting your questions and comments to the handle Post Live. The January jobs numbers are out and they are much better than economists expected. 467,000 jobs created. Unemployment rate now stands at 4%, just a 0.1% uptick from 3.9%. Joining me now, Amber Phillips, politics reporter at The Washington Post. Welcome to First Look. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. So, Amber, I want to read you this tweet from my Post Opinions colleague, Heather Long, that that she just put out. Uh, The U.S. has gained back 87% of the 22 million jobs lost in the pandemic recession. That's an incredibly fast bounce back. Um, uh, How surprising are these numbers um, uh, here in Washington and particularly for the White House? Well, they're significant for the White House and in Washington, and that's because economists point out that in January, jobs numbers are actually kind of bad. That's in part because seasonal workers from the holidays get let go. Um, And so economists were expecting January to be kind of meh. And of course that meant, you know, despite the fact it's a it's a usual trend at the start of the year, it meant Republicans could try to pounce on that. Uh, they don't really have that opportunity right now. This is jobs numbers continue to be something that Biden can and will and politically should continue to talk about. Uh, you hear him every time almost he gets to a microphone to address Americans. He talks about how the economy from two major markers, uh, unemployment and then, of course, wages, is doing pretty well, is humming along quite a bit. The pernicious problem remains inflation though. Uh, so we have this kind of like dual economy and it's and it's really driven by all the ways the pandemic has just completely reshuffled and tangled and, and made this, this global economy really much more difficult to understand and manage um, for world leaders. So we have this inflation issue that nobody I talk to really knows when it's gonna go back down or at least stop spiking. Inflation is the highest it's been in four decades. And that affects lower income Americans in particular, but every American who's trying to buy gas and eggs. We all have to buy gas and eggs as some economists have put it. And so uh, that's why when I talk to Republicans who are trying to win back the majorities in Congress this November, they tell me they're excited to talk about the economy from their perspective, even when you do have continual in good jobs numbers. And as Heather Long pointed out, the economy is like, in terms of unemployment, basically back to pre-pandemic levels are pretty darn close. Uh, Republicans still want to talk about the economy because that inflation remains intransigent and a political problem for Biden. Yeah, and the president is due to speak today uh, about the jobs numbers. Uh, this was planned before the number before the numbers were known. Um, yeah. We could probably see him doing a cartwheel <laughs> out to the microphones, given how good these numbers are. You know, Amber, you pointed something out um, at the start of your answer, and that was January jobs numbers usually are bad for you know seasonal reasons, and yet these numbers are good. I know these numbers are pretty much brand new, but any indication as to why the numbers are so good, why hiring and and, uh, people getting jobs was so good in January of all months? Yeah, I I think economists and and our 
uh, economic reporters and, and columnists of the Washington Post are still trying to sort that through and figure that out. But uh, the underlying uh, suggestion is that there's so many jobs open. We've heard a lot about Americans doing the great quitting. They're leaving their work. So many people are trying to hire. Well, there are jobs open and, and people who want those jobs are getting them and staying in them through the holidays, perhaps. In addition, our Washington Post colleagues writing on this point out that the jobs numbers could be even better because uh, about 9 million workers around the time the survey was taken were sick with Omicron. I mean, Omicron, especially on the East Coast, really knocked the economy back on its heels and like almost shut portions of it down because so many people were sick at the same time. Well, the government might have counted those people as not working. So these job numbers could be even better. And it suggests that with the great resignation, that's that's the term that some economists mm-hmm. have used to talk about this, um, that the it might be like pulling back a little bit. Maybe people are going back to work and and you know, walking in when they see those for higher signs to get a job. You know, and, and another thing that I'm going to keep my eye out for is revisions upward of, of previous jobs numbers, which we have seen over the last few months. So to your point, you know, these numbers might get bounced up in, in, in a few weeks or so. I want to switch gears to um, January 6th then. And these stories, all these stories that have come out this week, we learned that Donald Trump considered seizing voting machines. At least one executive order was drafted, but never signed uh, to implement that plan. How close, how close did they come to doing that? So I actually tried to walk through this this week, Jonathan, because we're like more, well more than a year after this, we're still learning about all these really crazy, zany ideas that got brought to the president. I mean, The Washington Post reported just yesterday that some people in his orbit proposed using the NSA, this national security agency, to essentially use its spy tools to somehow prove foreign interference in the elections and then have Trump overturn the election. Uh, One, (laughs) there was no foreign interference in the election that would lead to that. But but two, it just suggests like and underscores how many, I guess, just absolutely desperate ideas were circling around Trump. But to your question is, how close did we come to this actually happening? I looked at a bunch of these ideas, um, and a lot of them were coming from just random people that the president and or his top aides seemed willing to entertain, like a a retired army colonel in Texas, Phil Waldron, who had no qualifications, was potentially behind some reporting indicates from the New York Times, this executive order suggesting that Trump sees voting machines based on flawed uh, evidence of, of apparently, you know, fraud, which wasn't there at all. What it looks like Trump came the closest to considering was seizing those voting machines. Again, uh, the Washington Post has reported on this and the New York Times reported this week that he actually did urge his, his uh, personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani at the time, to call up the Department of Homeland Security and say, hey, is this possible? Is this legal? Do you think we could do this? It's not, <laughs> and they didn't do it. But I think the president was was like, I would argue, even pushing for this to happen, which would be remarkable. Of course, states run elections and they run these voting machines, mm-hmm. right? So the federal government can't just go in and take them. Right, and Amber, one more thing to uh, ask you about before we run out of time here, and that is another thing that Donald Trump was, cons- we, we're now finding out that Donald Trump was considering was the possibility of a blanket pardon for uh, to, for the January 6th insurrectionists. 
How seriously was that considered? Yeah, we don't know. That's still, it, it's tough to figure out how seriously some of this stuff was considered because we know people in his orbit were like bubbling it up and bringing it up to him. Um, what we do know is that Trump this past weekend in Texas said he kind of threw that idea out there, Jonathan. He opened the door to it and he talked about this openly. If I were president again and he's gearing up to think about a 2024 run, maybe I'll pardon you know a bunch of these people involved in the attack. That left a really bad taste in a lot of Senate Republicans' mouths who feel like that is a step too far. But I think it underscores that Trump continues to just push the envelope in really extreme ways with regard to overturning the election and trying to stay in power and get back into power. And one more real quick question, and that is the Republicans are meeting in their um, you know, party jamboree out in Salt Lake City. One of the things that's being considered is a, is a censuring of or kicking out of Congresswoman Liz Cheney and Congressman Adam Kinzinger uh, on a scale of one to 10. How likely is that to happen? I put it at five, maybe even six. <laughs> I think oh. <laughs> the the Republican Party has, like, from the top House leader, Kevin McCarthy, is fully accepted. They're the party of Trump. They need to hang on and figure out how to hang on. And if that means kicking out uh, some of these, like like Cheney, that's just party icon in the Republican Party, I think they're they're at least open to considering it. I think it's possible they do it. Right. The fact that we're even I even asked you that question tell, <laughs> tells you um, just you know where things are uh, within the Republican Party conference. Amber Phillips, politics reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you. We're going to keep the conversation going uh, with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find the Washington Post's deputy editorial page editor, Ruth Marcus, and Washington Post columnist, George Will. Ruth, George, welcome back to First Look. Good morning. Okay, let's talk about these BAFO jobs numbers. Everything that I was reading up until 8, uh, 8.30 this morning said, oh, it's going to be you know worse than expected. And instead... <laughs> 467,000 jobs created, the unemployment rate ticking up just 0.1% to 4%. George, good news for the country, but also good news for the White House, no? Uh, terrific news for both, but now let me rain on your parade. <laughs> yes, I came to you first. <laughs> Use the magic word expectations. We expected much better than this, which means we couldn't anticipate a week ahead or a month ahead. A bigger number came out this week for the American future, and that is we reached $30 trillion in national debt. We weren't expected to reach that until 2026. People say, well, we didn't count on the pandemic. Well, that's the point. Uh, our economic policy makers are constantly reading into the future their vast hubristic capacity to know what the future is going to be. They didn't anticipate in the 1970s the soaring interest rates. They didn't anticipate the dot-com boom at the turn of the century. They didn't anticipate the 2008 housing bubble collapse. Now, they're saying we know, we absolutely know that borrowing for the federal government is going to be low on 10-year treasury bills, which is most of our, our debt, through 2050. If they're wrong, if it goes back to anything like the, the historic norm for government borrowing, by 2050, 
interest payments will be the largest item in the federal budget and will consume almost half of all federal revenues. That's much more alarming to me than the fact that we, we got better numbers than we expected. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Ruth, before I come to you, I just want to remind our audience that um, you, know, you can send questions for our guests by tweeting them to post live. That's our handle, post live on Twitter, and I will see them. So R Ruth, now that George has rained on the parade, do you have an umbrella? Is that raining on the parade um, yes, actually necessary? Um, well, I was going to go run with George's metaphor, so I have a little bit more rain and also umbrella. I think I'll do umbrella first, which is it's not just that um, these jobs numbers from this month were so robust and so much better than expected, but there were revisions upward in the previous several months. And so that just suggests that the economy has momentum um, and strength that hadn't been previously measured. George is right about our inability to measure and predict, but we do um, fix some of our measurements. And that was that was uh, good news, um, both for the economy, uh, most important, and also for President Biden politically. Um, the, the bit of uh, continuing rain that I'll add, and um, second, George's concerns about the long-term impact and drag of the debt and deficits, um, is that it's great when people are employed and it's great when um, wages uh, increase, but if your wages are not increasing as fast as your costs of, as Amber said, um, gas and eggs, you're still gonna be a pretty cranky consumer and you're gonna be a pretty cranky voter. And so the Biden administration has to deal with the um, good news, but also the bad news realities of inflation, which is persisting. I'm going to switch gears and talk about Ukraine. And George, I want to get your reaction to something that the Prime Minister of Estonia said in a Washington Post Live program this week, where she cautioned against the prospect of appeasement. Listen. Russia has not walked from the table right now, and the uh, dialogue is, is going on uh, with NATO, but we have to be very, very careful that we don't give away something that they didn't have before. So, George, talk about why the Estonian prime minister would be concerned about, uh, about this and what might the West and NATO be giving Russia that has the prime minister so concerned? Well, she lives in a dangerous neighborhood and worries that the Russians, who are her neighbors, uh, will be encouraged really to subvert the Baltics. I believe Putin's main aim in life is to punish NATO, to destroy NATO. The best way to destroy NATO is to demonstrate that Article 5, an attack on one members and attack on all, is a dead letter. The best way to do that is to pick off one of the Baltic states, one with a large, say, Russian-speaking minority, foment insurrection, come in to protect the minorities, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, I think she's rightly reading the fact that what Putin made in his first demand which was Ukraine can never join NATO, which is a, sort of a non-starter at this point anyway, but also that NATO has to restrict its membership and its deployments and its military exercise. In other words, it wants to neuter NATO. And I think she's saying that if you give him anything, you are advancing this, this uh, attack on NATO, which if you're Estonia, you realize is your life preserver. 
Right, right. The Estonia, Estonia is, is this tiny country that lives in fear of Russia rolling over its border. Um, Ruth, let's talk more about NATO. And I'm just wondering from your vantage point, is President Biden effectively balancing the threat of NATO force with the prospect of diplomacy uh, with, in dealing with Russia and, and Vladimir Putin over Ukraine? Uh, I, I think President Biden is doing a very good job with a very difficult balancing act. And he's done a good job um, of standing up to Putin, of not um, backing down in the face of these 100,000 troops, of keeping the NATO alliance together, of not giving Putin an inch. The problem and the conundrum here is if you back down, then you incentivize Putin. But if you um, don't back down, what is Putin's exit strategy here at this point? He's got 100,000 troops. He's insisted that um, the NATO allies make promises about Ukraine that they're not willing to make. And how does he get out of this mess? What does he have to show his people and show himself? Because this is just about, I agree with Georgia, this is about Putin's hatred of NATO. It's about Putin's intense desire to reassemble the Russian empire. If he if he withdraws his troops with nothing to show, he's going to look weak, which is Putin's biggest worry. And how what's his, how does this end for him? Mm-hmm. And you know, George, something that's interesting, earlier in the week there were reports that, oh, the Russians haven't taken diplomacy off the table. They're sounding less bellicose. Meanwhile, we wake up uh, on a Friday morning and see pictures out of out of China of Vladimir Putin and Chinese President Xi having a meeting, um, nice warm smiles, handshakes. What are we to make of, of, of those meetings in light of what is happening on the border between Russia and Ukraine? Is, is Putin signaling anything? I don't think Putin knows at this point what he wants. I think Ruth is right. He's, he's got himself in an awful dilemma. I don't think the United States has any reason, either moral or prudential, to make life easier for Putin. If the outcome of this is to weaken him, that's a good thing. I think it's really crucial to understand that, that this is a kind of civilizational clash. The European Union which more than NATO is the, is the membership that Ukraine really wants. The European Union is an advanced salient of our values in the center of Europe, where uh, Ukraine, the largest nation entirely in Europe, is being dismembered since, 19, since 2014, when they invaded uh, Crimea. It's being dismembered. Now, this is the, people say Putin is a threat to the post-war order. The post-war order doesn't exist right now because mm-hmm. of this ongoing aggression. I do think that, that uh, Secretary Blinken and President Biden have been extremely skillful. And proof of this is the physics of politics is working against Putin. Putin said, let's do this to, to weaken NATO. I think it's given NATO a new sense of mission. 1949, NATO's first Secretary General, Lord Ismay, said the point of NATO is to keep the Americans in, the Russians out, and the Germans down. Well, that mission has changed somewhat since then. And now it it is almost entirely to keep the Russians at bay. 
Um, you mentioned um, well, uh, you mentioned Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken uh, giving him praise. Someone else gave him praise on the other side of the, on the other side of the aisle. Um, Utah Senator Republican from Utah, Mitt Romney, uh, yesterday praised Blinken, saying uh, he has done a quote beautiful job. I bring up Romney because I want to switch to switch away from Ukraine and talk about the the U.S. raid that killed um, the leader of ISIS and play something that Senator Romney said in regard to that raid. And we'll talk about it on the other side. Well, I think it was the right thing to do. Uh, there's no question but that ISIS continues to pose a threat to uh, our friends and allies, uh, not only in uh, the Middle East, but in other parts of the world. Uh, that The battle against extremism and jihadism is one that's not finished. Uh, it will go on as long as they continue to attack and, uh, and to maim and kill. Uh, and so removing their commander, uh, the, the head of, of ISIS, is obviously a huge accomplishment, uh, is to be congratulated. So Ruth, that's high praise from, from Senator Mitt Romney. Uh, just broadly speaking, is that raid ordered by President Biden um, a major victory against terrorism? Or is it that taking out the head of a, of a terrorist organization is only going to lead to a new head of the terrorist organization being put in place? Well, so um, both are true, but um, getting rid of the head of a terrorist organization is never a bad thing. It's never a bad thing in, in the most fundamental sense in terms of the war on terror. However, ISIS has been reduced as a threat, but still you want to do what you can to reduce it further. And it's also, and I hate to put this in crass political terms, but especially after the debacle in mm. Afghanistan and the withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, this was uh, not just a good thing for the U.S., but it's a good. This was a good foreign policy week for President Biden and his team. Right. I mean, that is a very good point, George, isn't it? That after the debacle of the withdrawal from from Afghanistan, the departure from Afghanistan, this is a a major foreign policy win for the president in the White House. It is, and it comes as Ruth says, uh, long after August, but not so long that it won't help. Uh, one, Biden was elected for two reasons. One was sort of domestic tranquility, and the other was foreign policy competence. He spent all those years as chairman of or a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which is why what happened at the at the Kabul airport in August was so ruinous to him. This will will help and ought to help. Uh, Ruth. A lot happened, or it continues to happen when it comes to uh, all the probes and investigations, both um, from a legal standpoint, but also a journalistic standpoint on what happened to January 6th. We learned this week that Donald Trump considered seizing voting machines and considered, con considered pardoning the January 6th insurrectionists. Meanwhile, some of his allies, as we're reporting in the Post, wanted to use the National Security Agency to attempt to prove foreign interference in the 2020 election. Ruth, you're an attorney. So from everything you've read, is there enough evidence to charge Donald Trump with a crime? Well, I think that you have to distinguish between um, whether a law student taking a criminal law exam could say, here are the elements of the crimes and here's what we know about Donald Trump's mindset. And yes, you could, charge him with a crime, and whether you engage in the actual exercise that prosecutors engage in, which is, um, 
Is this in line with how we have previously charged people? Is it more likely than not that we would be that we have proof beyond a reasonable doubt that uh, um, that a jury would be more likely than not to convict Donald Trump? And when you're do, considering a prosecution that is this fraught, this inevitably politicized, you do not want to um, aim at the king or the former king and and have a prosecution that is not that that is likely to fail or that could fail. So you want to be very sure of what you're doing. I, I look at this as, and I know some people really, really want to see Donald Trump prosecuted. I look at this as less of a prosecution question and more of a political fortitude question. What we have learned in the last couple of weeks simply reaffirms what we've known um, about Donald Trump from back in the days when he was still president. He was absolutely frantic during the final days of his term in office to do whatever he could to retain power and in fact to seize power and he had some allies henchmen crazy enough to try to um go along with him and help that and it, and there were others who um somewhat surprisingly um and thank goodness stood up to him his real mm -hmm. threat is a political one and whether if he is in office another time, God forbid, um, he will be smart enough to surround himself with total yes men and women, um, and that will all be at risk. But it is really a challenge for me, more for the political system than for the legal system. Right, right. George, in the few minutes that we have left, I want to go go across the pond and talk about uh, someone you've written about. In just the last couple of days, five top aides to British Prime Minister Boris Johnson have resigned in the wake of uh, the scandal over all those parties at 10 Downing Street during the COVID pandemic. You wrote a withering column about Bojo where you compared Johnson to Trump, but you note that they have one strong difference. What is that? Uh, one is uh, more serious than the other in the sense that uh, He's in power now, and he has shimmied up the greasy pole of British politics. The big difference in, in, is not between those two men, but in the two countries. Uh, his, Boris Johnson's popularity has simply collapsed in the wake of this revelation that he kept going to parties that he said he didn't go to, or that he didn't consider parties, or that he considered actually working groups, although the invitation said, bring your own booze. Anyway. Uh, the British have treated politics as we have as a game, as entertainment. And Boris Johnson, Lord knows, is entertaining if you don't care about the consequences for your country. Uh, the United States treated politics as entertainment in electing an entertainer in 2016. Uh, but whereas Boris Johnson's approval of the British public has collapsed, Donald Trump's base is rock solid, indicating that, that uh, evidence has nothing to do with it. So th there's a difference here that suggests that the British body politic is, uh, although susceptible to producing the same kind of foolish people as leaders, is more healthy in that it, uh, the British public knows how to repent. <laughs> do, you remember, do you remember that time Boris Johnson came and visited us? At the at the post editorial board, were you at that meeting? I was. It, it, well, it, go ahead. No, go. You you go. 
No, we have just about a minute left, but it, it was fascinating to watch this guy, um, so upper class um, in his upbringing, but in his presentation, um, the complete opposite. He, well, he is amusing to watch, and I think that is, um, as George says, why the British public has tolerated him. But he has uh, committed a sin that's one of the cardinal sins of politics, both uh, in the United Kingdom and here in the United States, which is rank hypocrisy. When mm -hmm. you ask people, when you ask the simple folk to live up to a standard of keeping themselves isolated and quarantining, and then you're partying hard at 10 Downing Street, including right. when you're working, um, people are going to get angry at that. And I think that is uh, common throughout yeah. um, uh, both societies. Yeah, they were hard, part <laughs> hard partying over several parties. With Marcus George Will, we are really out of time. Gotta go. Thank you both very much for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. Glad to be with you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.